first episode of the Gradlings podcast. My name is Bowden. And I am Justin. And we are your co-host and want to thank you for joining us today. We are also joined in the studio today by our lovely producer, Robbie, who unfortunately is a little under the weather and doesn't have a voice, but maybe she will recover and join us on the next episode. I mean, if she ever gets her voice back, she's over there miming at us. <laughs> Robbie, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, unfortunately, none of us are proficient in ASL, and it doesn't look like what she's doing is ASL either. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, so the... The reason why we're starting this podcast is because me and Bowden have had this never-ending conversation for um, several more years. More like argument, but... Okay, if it's an argument, I'm winning. I'm winning. No, okay. I'm winning. Okay, whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> the goal is to just bring in people who are like-minded, who study linguistics, graduate students specifically, so it's a podcast uh, by graduate students, for graduate students, but also for anybody that, you know, is a language teacher or anything like that. Uh, we're going to talk about new research that's coming up by, would you call them, are you a noob in linguistics? A noob? A I don't noob. think it's, I, I think, think that it's you're a noob. noob. I would say newbie, maybe. Newbie? Noob, noob is, yeah. I prefer the term early scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I think noob is pejorative, so let's just go with early, let's go with young scholar. I'm going to go with scholar. young scholar. I've always <laughs> considered myself a young scholar I'm in sure, linguistics. I'm, sh- I'm sure you have. So both of us study, uh linguistics and we kind of focus on second language acquisition we're here at the university of alabama the capstone of education the capstone the cap- i've never understood what the capstone is the capstone i'm just going to accept it as of my title the, the, the capstone is a thing that goes on it's the cap it's a stone whatever um, it's it the is cap of something we it's have the been highest okay it's the highest level it's the best the top well okay which That's is fine. a which is a good title uh it is it's a good accurate. title so we are in beautiful Tuscaloosa, Alabama from the deep south, but also <laughs> with some amazing linguists here in the area. So the, the purpose of this podcast is to bring in graduate students to talk about their research with us. We're going to kind of pick their brain a little bit, mm-hmm. but also we're going to bring in professors, professors right? right? So people with the PhD, the right. coveted PhD after their name, and <laughs> we're going to just have kind of like open topic conversation about several different things. Uh, this podcast is a bi-weekly podcast, or at least that's the goal, should Bowden have a paper or something like that Do I don't know. Maybe I can do paper and podcast bi-weekly. going to be in it's the fine. corner. Robbie is saying that you cannot. But <laughs> well, you know what, Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. She can't uh, even talk right now, so. Stay with us. We're about to come back with our very, very first guest ever on, on Gradlings. Uh, we're going to be joined by... A lovely person, uh, ABD, right? All but dissertation. So she's right there in the heat of the moment doing research. In the heat. In the heat. <laughs> well, it is. It's hot outside, so sure. <laughs> We're all in the heat, I guess. I guess Alabama's pretty hot right now. She's on the, she's on the cusp. She's on the... She's... No, she's pretty sure with it. I mean... So we are here today with Jana Thomas Kaufman, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about her research. Her title of her current dissert, her current title of her dissertation is "Bringing the Past to Life: The Effects of Historical Linguistics Instruction on Foreign Language Acquisition." So, welcome, Jana. Thank you very much. How's it going? Very good. 
I have my Starbucks. I'm feeling fine. <laughs> you, have your star- you have your refresher, right? My refresher. Jana is currently six months pregnant, so Ooh. she is very nice to like come and spend some time with us in the studio and talk to us a little bit While about our research. While just stating the future generation of linguists. <laughs> the future generation of linguists. They're getting a lot of like, <laughs> they're getting a lot of exposure to yep. very rich, right? Constant I plus one over there. No? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're here to talk to you just a little bit about your research. It's really interesting stuff. I personally am not very ad- like very proficient in historical linguistics so I'm actually really excited to hear what you have to say I'm really ready to learn some stuff Bowden is really good at historical linguistics I'm not really good at it but I'm just really <laughs> interested in it and yes see I refuse to be interested in something that I'm not good at no, I'm just kidding <laughs> I want to learn more I want like to learn more the, but it makes right. me feel sad <laughs> I don't know more he likes to have a, he likes to have a stack deck <laughs> I, like, I like to be working in my corner like I know what I'm doing so I, I would say like that that's actually one of the things that I want to do because I am interested in historical linguistics. And when I started doing my research, um, a, a lot of the the previous literature, they were actually acting as apologists for the field. They were almost saying like, this is a dead field. Nobody's interested in it anymore. Um, you know, grad schools barely touch on it at all yeah, and mm-hmm. undergraduate programs don't touch on it at all mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, these people right historically and yeah. like if you do a minor yeah. or a major you would n- almost never have that yeah I was gonna say like when I think of when I think of when you think of historical linguistics like the idea that comes to mind is history like, and that's like, never good like, like <laughs> I'm just well, kidding. well no but you have this idea of this like you know like a an old bearded man reading sitting a, in a, reading a library a manuscript by candlelight with I a, literally with a magnifying like glass this exactly Gandalf, you know <laughs> yes. literally Gandalf comes to mind when right, I'm but reading cool. like ancient runes I don't know yes but like less cool that's you're what essentially the think. Hermione Granger of our department I so. am <laughs> she I, used to study runes true. I'm to, come on. <laughs> she was studying historical linguistics. We all know. <laughs> so, Jenna, tell us just a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, what you do. How did you end up here? Because you're not actually from Alabama. I'm not. I'm a transplant. Uh, so I'm originally from Oklahoma, and I was raised um, by a Spanish and English teacher and her best friends who um, just kind of made this group of women. And so the story is that at three years old, I was correcting my babysitter when she said, you did good. I was like, ah, you did well. Oh, God. It was like instilled oh, in her yes. from those, the beginning. One of those kids. Yes. One of those. Oh, um, and, um, <laughs> I was one of those kids, too. So I, I went to college and um, studied Spanish, and I found linguistics was not a thing at my university at that point yeah. um, I went to Missouri State University and I told one of my Spanish teachers that I would be really interested in learning more about Spanish at the graduate level but I wasn't really interested in taking literature classes but that I was very interested in grammar and how languages fit together and yeah. she said oh that's called linguistics and that's a horrible idea <laughs> And she said, and she said, Jana, she was trying to save you. She she said, Jana, if you do that, you will be writing textbooks instead of fascinating articles on literature. And I didn't say anything, but in my head, I'm thinking textbooks sound so fun. (laughs) So when I got my master's at Missouri State, it was actually um, a master's of education, but my emphasis was Spanish. So you pick an emphasis, so you do education plus something else. So I essentially did a double major. Um, And so that was actually, you know, very pedagogically based. And I I had no linguistics in that program at all. So you came here as a grad student and you specifically came so that you could study historical linguistics, which is really awesome. We do have... 
a kind of strong like, we, representation is, of historical linguistics here at the University of Alabama. So. With Aaron O'Rourke and with Douglas Lightfoot, and that is actually why I picked it, because when I did my interviews at the schools where I had gotten um, scholarships, I was talking to somebody at another university, and he said, you know, we are strictly a literature program, and he said, I can probably list you five people in the country that are studying historical linguistics, which is not true. There are more. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, it's it's a dying field. And when these people are graduating or sorry, when these people are retiring, no one is, is being hired to replace them. Yeah. But then I came here and I talked to Dr. O'Rourke and Dr. Lightfoot and they were both thinking, yes, this is what we're interested in. This is yeah. going to be a great place for you. And I even said to Dr. Lightfoot that I was so excited to meet a historical linguist because I had loved when I had added on my um, <clears throat> TESOL graduate certificate. That's my first exposition to linguistics. And I had loved my history of English. And so that brings you to where you are now. You're working on this dissertation. It's all about you've kind of merged two fields in a way, talking about historical linguistics and pedagogy, kind of like yes. really playing to both of your. I mean, you have many strengths, of course. Jen has many I mean, but not, yes, but I think you're playing to two extremely strong strengths in the field. So, mm -hmm. so just tell me a little bit. The title of your uh, dissertation, one more time, is "Bringing the Past to Life." I really like that notion. Like, it kind of is bringing the past to life, and it's like very meta in a way <laughs> because it's like yes. bringing historical linguistics back to being and something quote, relevant. unquote relevant. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, tell us, like, how did you come to this? Like, why? So well, just first, first, tell us a little bit about your research, right? And give well, us just a broad overview. Yes. And then we're going to ask you some questions. We're going to ask you the hard-hitting questions. So about when I was linguistics. teaching high school, I was teaching um, 9 through 12 English language arts, and then I was also teaching Spanish. Okay. And just because it's something that I'm interested in, when I knew the history of a word or, you know, kind of like the Latin root or, you know, like you can especially for your 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 heavy readers mm -hmm. you can connect you know amor with amorous and they're going to know that word while so you know especially for my top kids they were thinking oh these actually make connections that i did not know about um, and these are really smart kids they knew the word amorous right i didn't know the word amorous until just now <laughs> 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 i mean let's just be real with each other <laughs> i never used that word <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I found was that for at least the, that top tier of kids that are big readers and they have a big vocabulary in English, that they were able to make these connections between the Latin words, you know, so vivir or viva for the French students mm -hmm. to vibrant and vivacious in, in English. Okay. And so I, I just found originally that there were some teenagers who were interested in this, which is not something that anyone would ever yeah, that's expect. That's kind of weird, teenagers being into... And what ended up Words happening like was we had a study group during our lunch hour at the high school, and it was meant for students who needed help, but everyone else had a, essentially a free period. And what ended up happening was I had a <clears> little <throat> group of students who would come to my room, and you know sometimes we would do other linguistic things, like we learned ASL together. But oh, wow. we, we would just talk about these things, and I found that these, these students were very interested in it, partly because of the topic and partly because... I was interested in it. Yeah. And they had that connection like with me. You kind of that and you kind of passed that along. So I started thinking, maybe this is not as dead of a field as everyone is thinking. Maybe, you know, when you're getting it at the university, maybe it is a little bit dry and heavy. But if you're kind of simplifying it and making it relevant to things that they're already interested in, like literature for these yeah. kids, maybe you could make it interesting. And so that's the entire premise, right? Is that yes. you're wanting to take historical linguistics... 
apply it as a pedagogical, almost like an intervention in a way, mm-hmm. and use it to improve language acquisition. Especially, um, I'm interested in seeing if it improves motivation, self-efficacy, and just wow. interest and enthusiasm. Self-efficacy is a very important thing right now. It is. It is. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a hot topic. It is a hot topic. So, self-efficacy, if they are able to recognize words. Now, are these all cognate words, or are they like... Like, vivre wouldn't necessarily be necessarily be a cognate in my mind. It would be a cognate between Spanish and Eng- Spanish and French. It's a cognate with you know vivacious. You have that viv. Ah, oh, that's true. Or vibrant. I wouldn't have never mm. made the. I mean, you're kind and of like training did these them. kids. Yeah. So you, pretty much the intervention is you're training them to recognize cognates. connections, the cognates mm-hmm. when they wouldn't. So like I would never have put vivir, vivir or vivre with vivacious. Right, and, and why why would most people would not? Especially in Spanish, it's even more coded because we pronounce that V as a B. Yeah. Um, but what I found was, and what the research calls it, is it's making um, difficult cognates, it's making them opaque. Uh, and okay. so all of a sudden, the, the connection that's already there in these languages, but that you probably wouldn't notice like you would romantic to romantico, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That all of a sudden, if you're <laughs> able to show these students that there is a connection there, it makes the vocabulary easier for them to remember. Yeah. And then it also, um, previous literature has also shown that it makes it more salient, that they are more likely to remember that word six months or eight months or 12 months oh, later, wow. not just on the chapter test. So that's what I was really interested in. So then that kind of brings me to when I came here and I had really started delving into these graduate classes and I had taken yeah. history of French and Spanish and historical linguistics with, with Dr. Lifelight. I was teaching at a prestigious private school in the area Mm -hmm. and so a lot of these kids were already would have been top of their class in a public school yeah we're talking children of professors you know Uh, big readers anyway middle schoolers that are reading at a college level and a lot of them are reading they're reading harry potter and they're reading you know greek mythology so they know these harry potter greek mythology but they know (laughs) these words yeah and so what i started doing was i one time I just I had complete control over the curriculum because it was a private school mm-hmm. and I had a little break there where we had many breaks in the school day so I made a two-week lesson I took what we were doing in our historical linguistics class and I let them use notes but I gave them the exact same material that graduate students were struggling with and I gave it to what was essentially a mixed Spanish class of advanced middle schoolers and then you know all the high schoolers yeah and um, I found that not all of them, but many of them loved it. They got very excited. They started, I started getting texts after school. Do you oh, think yeah. that these words could be related? And I started, um, they started coming in and saying, so-and-so and I were talking about this after school, and we want to know if these two words could be related. What do you think about that? Hmm. And I started noticing, you know, these kids are getting excited. We started uh impromptu little competition where they would come in one of the moms told me she said you know my son actually has a list of 20 words that he's put together that they are cognates and I started giving them a sticker on this poster for every word that they brought in in the morning and she said he's holding them back so if the other kids beat him (laughs) he can oh he's very smart (laughs) but he doesn't want to get too far ahead and it became a real competition it became a game and that wasn't something that I had ever planned but it just happened organically. Yeah. 
And I thought, I want to research this. Very cool. So I wanted to go back to something that you said a second ago. Is this, is your research just dealing with cognates or is it going beyond that? So I did start with cognates because those are the easiest and those are the, you know, the easiest connection to make. Yeah, I mean, cognates, that's how I started. Right. That's how I try and start any language that I try and learn, right? Right, and that's a great strategy. Yeah. And I think that it's, and sometimes like I've actually seen in, um, I'm just thinking back to when I took, unsuccessfully took Spanish in high school <laughs> and in the first and like in the first chapter it had the thing of you know like basically I guess it was an attempt to lower an effective filter of saying like hey don't freak out about about Spanish because yeah. we actually share a lot of words like right exactly yeah and I can't think of any off the top of my head because my Spanish is so <laughs> right, bad no. like for example <laughs> yeah. administración right like administration, administration. anything with that sure. c-i-o-n at the end was yes it's kind of like almost definitely a cognate. I so I that. did start with cognates, but then what I noticed is once I had really gotten more into the history of Spanish, um, I, I kind of moved on there and I showed them some sound changes that happened. So I could show them, for example, this T in Latin, if it's intervocalic, which means between vowels. Uh, in Spanish, it softened to the point that it became a D. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they can see, um, you know, words that have to do with... Um, trying to think of one like natación yeah but that becomes nadar with a d for to swim Mm -hmm. and they can make that connection and for example the word um advocate is the word in spanish for lawyer abogado and you know that's no longer a cognate if you don't know that v's softened to b's and t's softened to d's but once you know that that sound change happens you can make that connection. And another really interesting thing that happened in Spanish and makes some cognates very difficult to see is um, initial words in Latin that started with an initial F. Many of them changed to a silent H in Spanish. So any Spanish one student learns hambre for hunger. But what they don't know is if you remove that H and you put an F, you Mm -hmm. can see the F-A-M, that's related to our English word famine. Ah. And no one would ever get that if you didn't, you know, it's not really a cognate anymore. You cannot look at those two and think, hombre, famine. But once I showed them that this happened, suddenly the students were like, oh my goodness, this did. And so then you look at ongo, and then you, they look at it and they can see fongo, fungus. That's why it's the Spanish word ah. for mushroom. This is exactly what I'm getting. We're talking about like (laughs) patterns. And to me, I almost like think about, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about like a crossword or like, not a crossword or like, well, yeah, kind of like a crossword puzzle or like Sudoku where you kind of like use these rules and like you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily about like teaching conversationally. It's just more about like, how do you say like connections rather? Right. It's making connections and it's metalinguistic skills. Yeah. And so they're going to be able to like recall these things. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly like they're going to have to do this for a little bit, but then later they're not going to have to think, you know. Right. You know, like ongo, fungus, fungus. You know, like, right. however that transition was. And for know, example, like, you know, most, there's enough French in English that, you know, I think most high schoolers that have taken a civics class, they know what savoir-faire is mm-hmm. um, or laissez-faire. And okay. then all of a sudden, because of that F to H change, they can see that faire in French, to do or to make, is related to hacer. Mm-hmm. And those are also related to many embedded English words like perfect, manufacture, ah. those F-E-C or F-A-C 
Um, and all those have to do with making something or yeah. improving something. And so all of a sudden it can really just expand those connections so that, and as we all know, when you have a vocabulary word and you just memorize the definition, you're much less likely to connect or to remember that word later yeah. than if you have connections <clears throat> to 10 or 12 words that that is connected to in English. Suddenly your, your neurological connections in your brain for this one vocabulary word are much richer. They're much stronger. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to remember it and you're more likely to make further connections in the future. I know what this reminds me of now, not Sudoku. It reminds me of geometry. Like when you do those like proofs. This, the proofs, right? Proofs, is that what they're called? Yes, I think they're called proofs. Right? It's been a long time. Since None I of us have math people here. Yeah, <laughs> it's been quite a minute. But no, once you know the rules, then you like apply the rules right. as you need them, right? And not all rules come into play at one time. Like mm -hmm. yes, this works with this angle, with yes. that angle, with this, and then if this, then that, and then it's kind of. And yeah, that's so it, important it, it, because <clears throat> many language students, you know, they're if they're good at their English class and history traditionally they're good at a foreign language class and that leaves out a lot of students who really don't like English or reading mm -hmm. but all of a sudden when you bring in that linguistic side and they can see it's it's like a it's like a mathematical equation you know you yeah. plug this in and you will always get this result suddenly those students that aren't really good at English and don't really love the the conversational aspect of the language for them it's, it's a pattern or it's a puzzle sure. maybe they're good at math and science and suddenly mm -hmm. it can bring language more alive for students that would have been missed yeah I mean I agree I think it's um in terms of when I was just going back to my experience of first learning when I was first learning German I never learned about the um I never, I never learned about the the consonant shift that happened mm -hmm. that, that the was great the consonant shift <laughs> like there was a war or something like the great vowel shifts like the great vowel shift like, like, I swear it's like, like drums like those like dum, beautiful dum, dum, dum. letters like you know they what have like about? a tapestry yeah. you know, in some church in Europe yeah like the it was... fight between O and U like the, the, bi the Bayou tapestry like, linguists yeah, exactly. are sometimes overly traumatic I don't know. I think um, I definitely but fit it, into it, that. But that, that, that reminds me of, um, you know, I think it's honestly a travesty that I didn't, I wasn't exposed. I mean, yeah, I guess if I, if I'd been, kind of a strong word, but okay. if I'd been more, <laughs> if I'd been more, um, if I had, if I'd been more interested and wanted to investigate on my own, I guess I could have found it because it's not like the that consonant shift that was first proposed by this referred to as Grimm's law. Now it's not like that it's hiding in some like deep recess of the internet. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a pretty, it's a pretty commonly known thing, but I wasn't exposed to it until my first year of graduate school. Right. And I felt like that helped me so much with, um, with like learning, like knowing these words that are still Latin roots that we still use in English. And then thinking back when I see that word and then thinking back, okay, like if I reverse, the consonant shift in German, like what what is what does that word look like in English, mm -hmm. and then you can mm -hmm. figure out the meaning. Exactly. And I feel like that should have been something that was at least mentioned. You yeah. Know? You know, it's funny to me because one time a Spanish student, who she wasn't in my class, but she, we we knew each other because we had we worked together in Costa Rica or something like that. Um, well, it wasn't something like that. It was that. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very <laughs> ambiguous right now. <laughs> but, and she was talking to me about how in her 400 level, some somehow it came up to where they were talking about accent marks in Spanish. And it was like, there's a rule there, right? Like mm -hmm. when you use an accent mark, when you don't use it, when the certain things are accented just in speech, like, but not with an accent. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. And so like, 
I was thinking to myself, and she told me, she was like, I wish somebody had just explained this to me in the 100 level or the beginner level so that I could apply this rule. And I was thinking to myself, somebody tried to teach me this once and I absolutely like, it was like a mind block for me. You know, like I did not want to internalize this because I already knew it. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that would have helped me or not. Right. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I mess up. Uh, but like, if it helps some students, exactly. I mean, we're never going to get all. And but so the idea kinda... is to just cast a wider net, Yeah, I think. And if, you know, if this gets in a few more students, yeah, not all of my high schoolers or middle schoolers were interested in it. Certainly among the middle schoolers, fewer were. Yeah. But then I had one middle schooler. He was in eighth grade. And when I gave them a little test that I think, you know, graduate students would have had trouble with but I let them use notes mm-hmm. and um, he made a 99% oh wow so that to me that was worth my time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. suddenly he was interested in that and he knew that linguistics was a thing and he knew that that was something he might be interested in someday yeah. in studying yeah and so and you know I told his parents about it and they were just super proud of him as they should have been and so I think that's amazing going back to what Bowden was saying about how you know th- this these laws are not hidden away mm-hmm What I found just kind of doing my lit review for my my dissertation is several of these historical linguists that are acting as apologists for the field saying, you know, come on, guys, it's not dead. Let's let's do this. What they're saying. We're still here. We're still here. (laughs) There are still conferences dedicated to historical linguistics. Right. And we are still relevant because learning about language change at any point in a language can can be interesting to any field of linguistics, I think. But um. I think one of the things that that they're saying is that we should be doing this younger. It shouldn't be something that we're only exposed to at the graduate level. And so when I started doing my research, I went into the K through 12, you know, just national standards, like the actful standards. And I went into, and they had nothing for foreign language about historical linguistics. But when I went into the English language arts, they had things um, saying that we should be teaching as young as first grade all wow. the way up to every, all the way to from first to 12. Every language arts section had, we should be teaching very simple, but roots to Latin and roots to oh, other okay. connections. Oh, wow. And so my argument became, because nobody had really done this research before with such young students, if we're doing this in English, which is not a directly Latinate-based language, mm-hmm. how much more helpful would it be for the students of Portuguese and Romanian and Spanish and Italian and French that are so connected to Latin that there's going to be even more of these cognates? Yeah. Yeah. It and just makes sense. Interesting. And, why is it, and also, I mean, why is it just like, so just in the foreign language, that's like hands-off. Like, you can't, like, don't apply that to the foreign language. Uh, maybe you because they're so, else, like, you know? right. Why is it, um, yeah, It's just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. Exactly. I think. I think sometimes teachers would have a hard time in, like, the not advanced schools. Like, for example, I didn't go to the most advanced school. I went to a county school in Alabama. Me too. Right. And so, like... I'm just thinking about my ninth grade Spanish class, and if my teacher tried to, mm-hmm. there were a lot of problems with the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the Spanish class was awesome. I love Miss Mac; she was perfect. But, but no, I think because some of what I did was in a public school, and oh, it, yeah. it was in a rural Missouri public school. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and still like, saw it. That's really. And awesome. like I said, what I did was I sprinkled it casually into conversation <laughs> when it came up, not often. <laughs> And I'm just imagining you like bringing up, like pushing historical. Right, like I'm cooking my cake batter and I sprinkle in a little cinnamon. But if you don't like cinnamon, not too much, right? Yeah. And 
Um, but no, and so then that's that's why I made it that lunch group. It was completely if they wanted to come. Yeah. And so then what I did was I, I went to my principal and subsequently the board, and we actually started a historical linguistics class, which was going to be an elective. They had to have taken Spanish and French for at least one year. They had to talk to me and have a certain grade in those languages to take it. And the idea was that it was completely for fun. It would look good on their transcript. It's going to look good when you're applying to colleges. Yeah, sure. But it's not going to count as French 3 or Spanish mm-hmm. 3. And um, so that kind of was going to be an opportunity, I think, for the more advanced language students to have differentiated instruction. Um, unfortunately, the, the year that we got that passed, I accepted the scholarship to the University of Alabama. And I, I you left, left them hanging. And the students She was this. like, where is that cinnamon <laughs> in that kid? You left them fiending for more like historical <laughs> linguistics. Yes. Of it. Those four students have been left alone in that. In that uh, they have. I'm just picturing this like That's dilapidated okay. building in the middle of the <laughs> Missouri crumbling. countryside. Yeah. Yeah. So no. Jenna, we're all grad students here, right? So we're, you know, kind of like I love can you tell me the root word of the word amateur? The original Can you? I think I know what it is. <laughs> Please actually. tell me. I think it means now I might be wrong. <laughs> okay. Don't <laughs> cite this or <laughs> don't quote this. Like how I said, don't cite this. But <laughs> I think it means like a person without like formal training that is just very passionate about the subject. I think I learned this on Mozart in the Jungle. No? Okay, but what's so it go back to? It goes back to the word amar, like love. I think so. Like that a would be lover. very interesting. So amateur, we'll have to look that up. Like a lover of something, but, but not necessarily a scholar. <laughs> what is the etymology? Do you have an app? I see you on your phone over there. Y'all are nerds. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, I do I mean, have an app. I have, I have the Oxford English Dictionary, like, always always yes. ready to always go. Always ready. <laughs> Etim Online is my jam. Oh, gosh. I don't even know what these are. <laughs> I know You're what the Oxford Dictionary out. is. No, Etim Online is amazing. So we're all, the point is we're all, like, amateur linguists, right? We don't have that official PhD yet. But tell us, like, in this process, like, you defended your proposal last year. December. In December. Mm -hmm. So last year, right? Mm -hmm. Just a few months ago. But tell me, like, what has this process been like for you? What is some advice that you can give to any aspiring linguist or a linguist who's in your state Mm -hmm. or somebody who's about to be, like, for example, I just proposed, I just did my proposal as well. So I'm about to, I joined the ABD club this. Welcome. Yeah. (laughs) All but dead. (laughs) All but dissertation. All but dead. Yes. So I, as you two know, my, my father is a professor. And so I have had such a wonderful support and help. And I have, I have just seen how much that has helped me professionally and, you know, just in handling the stress of graduate school to have had somebody that's already a tenured professor. And when I say, I can't do this, he says, you know, Jana, I said that 20 years ago, you can do this. And, and, you know, he's kind of been there to guide me step by step of the way. And what I found is, you know, after I will talk to my professional advisors, who know me on a professional level for a few years. Then I'll call my dad, who knows me, you know, my personality and what I'm good at and what I'm not. On a personal... So you got best of both worlds. I have the best of both worlds. So you got your professors that look out for you here, and then you got the... Dad who knows me, you know. Yeah. You know, and so when I'm saying, am I rushing this? He's like, you know, Jana, you're a fast writer and a fast reader. You're not rushing it. You can do this. So what about do for it. people who don't have a professor dad? So, right. So I was going to say, so, so let what, me, do you th- what can you tell me, share, Let me share some of, you know, the professor dad, you know, thank you, Professor Doug Thomas, that 
um, that I have been lucky to have. And I, I think some of the best advice he's given me is start presenting early, but do it with another professor. Don't just jump into it yourself because you're going to make mistakes, but no one will come up to you at a conference and be like, so this is your first conference. Right. You made these mistakes. Uh, yeah. So, you know, he always said, you know, his first publication was with a tenured professor when he was a new professor. Mm -hmm. So my first presentation, we put his name on it. We presented, quote, together. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he clicked for me on the PowerPoint and he introduced me. And oh, then yeah. he just was kind of like, you do your thing. But, but he was there I to referee here. those hard questions. Maybe. He was. Yeah. And then at the end, he was able to say, you know, this is what you did well. This is what's expected. This is what you can improve for the next time. Oh, perfect. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that is great advice. And then, um, you know, kind of what he told me, you know, he's always, you know, why are you calling me? Shouldn't you be doing more work on your dissertation? And I said, Dad, you know, I've passed the, the prospectus. I'm done with my lit review. And he laughed and he said, Jana you're never done. <laughs> yeah, I actually kind of agree with that. <laughs> and I think that's with something recent news, that we all think, we're like, haha, I've passed this, I'm done. And it is never done until it is... It's done and when it's signed, and that's it. Right. It can literally change the day before. Yes, and I think that that's something that some of us, you know, weren't prepared for, and we were a little heartbroken when someone's like, so congrats, you passed, now please fix this, 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 for the yeah, next that's step. Kind of, that's kind of hard. In grad school, you always have this feeling of like, when is this ever going to be over? Right. And it's really not When over. will it be good enough? <laughs> never. It's <laughs> never good enough. Like, <laughs> right. I guess you, it's it kind of like any improved. piece of art, right? Like, can always. Yes. I mean, I don't know. There's always room for improvement. There's, there's always, always. Room for, yeah, with everything. I'm sure the person, I'm sure whoever, like, creates, sits down and, like, you know, like, builds something or, like, paint something or write some play or whatever or like write some piece of music they're always thinking to themselves later down the road they're like man I really should have worked a little bit harder on this you're always mm -hmm. gonna feel like you've not worked hard enough right. and so it's kind of like as a grad student that's that wears on me that like burden not burdens me but it weighs on me like a yes. lot you know words they're important <laughs> Hashtag but words. no I, I completely <laughs> agree and I think it's just been good for me to, ha to have somebody that I can call and you know vent to scream to cry to say i'm so excited about x you know yeah. too and and he's always given me good perspective you know i think one time with my master's with my thesis i thought i had written just like you know a top notch piece of excellently researched work yeah and my advisor came in and he was like frankly this is poorly written and i had never mm. been told that and mm. you know i call my dad afterward and i'm i'm almost in tears and, you know, my dad was just like, you know, their job is to improve you. They're always trying to help you. They're never going to say, yes, you're great. Rest on your laurels because that's not what academia is about. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had some I, laurels to rest on. I have no laurels. Have a, no, no laurels. laurels. <laughs> Without laurels. We're all earning our Sounds laurels. laurels. <laughs> Um, what is, um, <laughs> that's really, that's, that's really great that you had your dad, uh, there to help you along kind of, and give you some insight during the process. Um, in terms of your process also, like, what was something that you could have avoided? Like, say something that you wish you would have known about in the beginning that would have made the whole process a lot easier or say less stressful? The IRB process. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, the IRB process can be I was like, right, okay, so I will do these common sense things to protect my subjects and 
and this will be fine. And, you know, then my IRB reviewer is like, no, no, no. <laughs> and I found that to be very discouraging when you're getting something back, you know, and it's making the process drag on six to eight months. I've heard horror stories of two years longer than what How you, is that possible? Than what you were expecting. And, you know, sometimes it's things like you forgot a period after you put Mrs. Thomas Kaufman please fix that. And I just wanted to pull out my hair and throw the computer across the room. You know, I'm just like, can I please just move on with my research? Yeah. But it's just, it's hoops. There's it's always hoops to jump always. through. Who are, right? these, who are these IRB they're, people? They're anonymous. Like, they're not anonymous. Saying, like, they may be among us even like, now. <laughs> they're watching <laughs> oh us. They heard about this and they're going to find if find out if we can use an IRB and, person. They think Justin's an IRB person. <laughs> no. Oh my God, could you imagine? <laughs> no. No, they I couldn't actually. <laughs> No, because I'm not, not detail oriented. <laughs> oh, I am detail oriented, but I also like to think about it on a holistic level. You know, yes. I wonder if they have the thing where like you can't like it's you you may reveal only at time of death <laughs> <laughs> that you've been working as a fireman. It was you. Like, I thought my dad was a fireman, and I turned out he was working as an IRB place. It's Jeez. like it's like being in the CIA. But yes. you know that brings up a really interesting topic that I think we should cover in like future a future episode but just to touch on the it just IRB. a little bit the IRB is there to both protect us and, and the participants the but in a way IRB kind of hinders research in a way it makes right? it I think a longer process and it is important and so I'm gonna I'm gonna sprinkle in a little more Dr. Dad okay um, Dr. Cinnamon, Dad is this vanilla that we're getting now is, is jeez he, you're uh, you know, right, we're gonna go with nutmeg because <laughs> uh, that goes well with cinnamon gosh um, I want a cake now I want a tres leches more than can anything can you tell that I've been Pinteresting this morning <laughs> um, no so I did you know I, I did I called him and I was just like how do you ever get through the IRB process I can't do this and he said these are hoops. These are hoops to make sure that you can jump through them. And he said, you just jump through every hoop they give you with a smile on your face. Yeah. And that, and I, I said, okay, I can do that. If this is something that everyone has to go through and we all understand it's there to protect the participants. Um, and so yet, and then not a day later, I came in and I found one of our ABD students who, you know, she was visibly upset. Yeah. And she said, you know, this is, this is, this process has destroyed who I think I am. I may just quit. Jeez. I may That's quit. That's cool. It's not for the fate of art. No. I may just quit. You know, I've never in my life been told I'm a bad writer. I don't know what I to know. make of this. When you get that, that, when you get that email, it's, just it's like, crushing. It is crushing, but right. Jenna, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an awesome conversation. I am thank so you. much more interested in historical linguistics than I ever was before. See? <laughs> it's, it's not dead. I should go to a conference and meet all the historical linguists in the world. Most most of them will have spectacles and beards. They'll all be at the one. They all have beards and they're all, they're all trapped away in like these closets in the, li- in the libraries. <laughs> Jenna, thank you so much. That was an awesome conversation. Thank you. That was about great. Thank you. Thank historical you. linguistics, uh, combining pedagogy and historical linguistics. That was great. I'm ready to do some reading on the great vowel shift the great vowel shift <laughs> <laughs> guys it is super awesome that we just completed our very first episode yes you can't see Robbie but she's doing the happy hands we will 
Happy <laughs> hands in the corner. Uh, anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to email us if you want to chat or if you have any suggestions about what we can do in some upcoming episodes. Uh, you can email us at gradlingspodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram, gradlingpodcast, so that you can all just see how like funny and interesting we are over there. And, <laughs> There's going to be a lot of pictures in of the library. books being read and very exciting things like that. <laughs> Occasional crying into the <laughs>